0: Welcome to our show. I'm uh, Russ McCullough at uh, Ottawa University-Gortney Institute, and I'm here with my colleague, uh, Dr. Levi Russell. And uh, Levi's going to tell us about our guest today. We have a special guest.
1: Levi? Yeah, so uh, Dr. Paul Cleveland is a professor of economics and finance at Birmingham Southern College. He received his Ph.D. in economics from Texas A&M University and began his career at SUNY Genesco in 1985. He spent one year as a visiting professor of economics at the University of Central Florida in Orlando before joining the faculty at BSC in 1990. His principal academic research is focused on the study of free enterprise and political economy. In pursuing his studies, he reads extensively in the areas of economics, philosophy, theology, and history, which are helpful in exploring the morality of free markets. And helpful for our little podcast here. So that'll
0: be a good spot. So uh, welcome, Paul. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yes. Uh, so we were talking a little bit before we started that uh, you think socialism sucks. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, my friend, uh, ben Powell and uh, Bob Lawson
2: have uh, written a book by that title. And I've just gotten started to read it myself and plan on doing a book discussion event with some students here at Birmingham Southern.
0: Yeah, I think we'll we'll do the same thing. Uh, what what do you think so appealing about uh, the way they're approaching that topic? I think uh, you've had a book. Um, what was the name of it again? That uh, yeah, my
2: my book was titled the "Great Utopian Delusion." Okay. Uh, the subtitle is "The Global Rise of Government and Destruction of Liberty." And a lot of it, though, is on the problems of socialism. Uh, yeah. Because socialism, at the end of the day, is the tool. The political tool of all utopians. They they sort of think that they're going to get to paradise on earth through legal means.
0: How do you think that's contrary to uh, biblical principles? Because I think uh, there, there's a lot of Christians out there who might fall back on acts and think uh, that's our that's our objective is to kind of continue to be striving. Uh, to do what Jesus would do and have everybody lock arms and kumbaya and uh, come to some peaceful centrally organized plan way of peace. How would you counter that?
2: Well, uh, as I read through this the Bible, other than the church, I don't really see uh, any sort of communal activity. Now the church is certainly a community that is organized in this particular way. Uh, But in order even for the church to function, people must go out and be productive and be economic in what, what it is they're doing. As a matter of fact, I would say this is the way that God had created the universe to begin with. Um, I mean, if we go back to the start of Genesis well before the fall, what we find is that uh, God had given Adam and Eve, a mission. He said, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to multiply and I want you to take dominion over it. Well, they didn't know everything that was necessary to know. And, and that implied they were going to have to work at it. They were going to have to take the resources available and use those in particular ways to accomplish particular ends. And so, work uh, results in property. There's, I mean, production results in some sort of property. Well, who's gonna who's gonna use that? Who's gonna own that? Who's gonna decide how to use it? Well, isn't the in, individuals that are are engaging in creation itself? And so, uh, why in the world then would God later come and the eighth commandment be "Thou shalt not steal" if He didn't intend? for us to respect the private property and lives and liberties of other people.
0: Now is that, you know, that uh, commandment came post fall. So I think the, um, the challenge would be is that private property condition, thou shalt not steal, of course, it wouldn't be needed in our, in our uh, second coming of the kingdom scenario of, of heaven on earth. Um, what do you think about that?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, because we'll respect one
0: another. Right. It's intrinsic.
2: That's intrinsic. Yeah. If if people are respecting uh, one another, then we don't steal from each other. We don't beat each other over (laughs) to try to get what we want. We We simply don't do it. Yeah. What we do is we engage one another in ways... That are mutually beneficial. and that, I think that will absolutely. Be
0: yeah, it's no longer in our DNA. Uh, is what is the way I would think about it.
1: No. Yeah. So, so I, I want to try to <clears throat> take a different stab at this. Okay. and and so, you know, I uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas, and you know, one of the things that he talks I. about. I.e., he's a and, Catholic. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the things that we get in. Uh, like Pope Leo's encyclicals, uh, starting in the late 1800s, Pope Leo XIII, um, is this idea of the universal destination of goods. And so we've we've talked about this on our podcast uh, here before, but um, I, I wonder if that's not another, um, you know, potential case of a, you know, someone trying to make the case that, uh, you know, socialism is a good idea. Um, and I know that, you know, so I, I think there's something more limited about what I would say about property rights is that you know they're simply a function um, that, that we have contrived to to ensure that there is uh, you know the universal destination of goods. In other words, um, you know everything was created for all of humanity, but we have to split it up a certain way just because you know the world is. Um, you know, in its fallen nature, we have to we have to have this property rights thing um, so that people can feel secure in their property and um, and, and can use it effectively. So, I, I I guess I would take a slightly different angle on it, but but I but I'd love to hear what you you think about that.
0: Well,
2: yeah, uh, Levi, I think the, the for me as I look at this thing, it, it's like this that we're, we're each individual and we're each unique and we're each going to be engaged in different sorts of activities and doing different things. And the natural consequence of that is that we're each going to be productive in different ways and that trade becomes an immediately obvious way for us to be mutually beneficial to one another. And in other words, as uh, the same way in the church itself, we edify one another when we use our spiritual gifts, uh, within the concept of the church. Well in this in the physical realm, in the physical world, economics becomes that same sort of thing. But economics is wrapped around this whole notion of production and trade. Um, now, I think the the reality is our in a fallen world our history is the abuse of one another for our own immediate ends. And therefore you know, in, in terms of the rise of uh, the need for government, governments only exist and the creation of property rights exists because fallen human beings were so willing to violate and transgress against one another uh, rather than to respect one another. And so I, I think what's happening then, it, you know, as, as the church uh, goes out on its mission. Uh, then part of that mission is to get people to uh, to do just that, to, to think about how they should respect the property of other people and not just try to abuse them for their own envious and jealous wants and needs. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, in this fallen world, there, yeah, there are a lot of cases in this fallen world where charity is called for. And, and and certainly, I think we want to be involved in that, and that certainly is, is also is very prominent in the scriptures uh, as well. So I think those two bedrocks, as I said, you know, Michael, what does the Lord God want from you? Well, He wants you to do justly, therefore respect property, lives, and liberty. He wants you to love mercy, be a charitable human being towards others and then to walk humbly to God. So I, that's, that's sort of the framework that I would pitch you
0: And as you were speaking, I just thought, there's only, it only takes a few people or a minority even of some amount that can kind of wreck the system. So let's just say you've got 80% of trustworthy, let's not call them angels, but for the most part, they trust and respect property rights, blah, blah, blah. Uh, if you've got 20% of the people with big clubs, and uh want to take things by force because of their sinful nature, or whatever, that can kind of wreck everything. Um, and right. I think some of these totalitarian regimes that we've seen is the the average person might just want to keep to themselves and hey, I want to live my life. I kind of see this in in some of the places I travel to that are developing too, is that the the government function and and that is so distant from them that they're like, oh, whatever they vote for, whatever they do, whatever changes are made, you know, I'm just living my life of maybe subsistence or a little above subsistence. And they tend to not uh, bother it until maybe it blows up on them, like Venezuela and it, 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 or Nazi Germany, if we want to go back to that or whatever, um, that it, it reaches a point where it's like, oh, maybe I maybe I should have been thinking about that stuff.
2: Right. I, I think you're probably right, Russ. In fact, I think that's... Uh You know, in Hong Kong, uh, because the people who populate uh, the area are so used to the free enterprise and have enjoyed the growing prosperity of it, the recent uh, threats that uh, the government have imposed upon them have really sent them flying into the streets to protect their rights.
1: Well, so, Paul, I, I have a question. So, you, you know, you, you wrote this book about socialism, and you're um, kind of using a new book uh, to, to have discussions about socialism with students. And I, I find myself thinking, you know, well, we can, it's, it's quite obvious how bad, um, you know, Venezuela is right now. We can, we can see all the horrible things that Maduro is doing. Um, and you mentioned the Hong Kong protests. But so I kind of wonder, you know, why, why the average, uh, you know, 20-year-old college student um, you know, is, is, is maybe enamored with socialism? Are they interested in it? And that's why, you know, we're having to, to, you know, write these books and have these discussions with them or, um, I mean, what, what do you see as the, the background for that?
2: Yeah. It, it, it's sort of interesting because on, on the one hand, I don't think they really understand what socialism is. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you tried to get them to define it, I'm not quite sure they would get it. And, um, and so, plus, they've never, they've never had anything other than prosperity in their lives in the United States. Yeah. So I have nothing to compare it to. Um, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Clarence Carson, he, he had a little um, story that he told him. I think there's some truth to it. He said, you know, what if uh, we were to devise an electrical production system that work completely on its own. And that once we got it started, it's just working. And so that people just got used to it. They would go buy their appliances and plug them in, and, uh, and they would have just worked, right? Because we had cheap, uh, effective uh, electricity. Now, suppose that after a number of years, when people have forgotten how all this works, <clears throat> that the system starts to break down. What would they do? Well, they might imagine doing dumb things like trying to get new appliances.
1: Yeah, like a cargo Cult kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. huh?
2: right. Uh, you know, we're just I'm not, because all I know is plug it in the wall. Right. And um, and they forget why what works really works. And I think a lot of this has to do with free enterprise as well. Uh, people take it for granted. One of the things I do with students, and I do it almost right off in classes, is uh, to get to drive this home is, if it's before lunch, I'll pick out a student, maybe it's Jim, and I'll say, Jim, have you thought about lunch? And he may say, well, yeah, I have. I say, okay, well, what are you gonna have? Well, let's suppose he says, well, I'm gonna have a chicken sandwich. I say, great. What are you gonna have on that sandwich? Do you like tomatoes or lettuce? And he goes, yeah, I like that. Mayonnaise? Sure. Uh, Cheese?
1: Oh, yeah.
2: And what kind of cheese? You know, Swiss. Okay. So then my question is this, okay, Jim, I want to, how many hours is it going to take you to make a chicken sandwich if you have to do all the work by yourself? (laughs)
1: Yeah. Right.
2: Uh, So now, first you'll have to go out in the woods and find that true free range chicken. And then you're going to have to kill it and cook it. And I, I get him to start thinking about all those details. And, and pretty soon he'll get to the point. Well, I'll, I'll die
0: first. Before I, <laughs> I don't check. know if you're familiar with the, uh, there's a short little video that is the chicken sandwich video. Have you seen that one? I, I just showed right. it to my class. I hadn't shown it for a while, actually. And then I... <laughs> I have a long laundry list of economics videos and I I stumbled across it. Well, this guy took up that challenge and the sandwich, long story short, didn't taste that great, but he did make it with all the ingredients, did his own bread and everything. Uh And it was $1,500. Wow. Wow. Was they, what, and, that's my, that's and, and six point. months. And six months worth of time, you know, g- growing, the, <laughs> doing the chicken and everything. So
2: Obviously, he ate other things. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. 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 And so my, my whole point with, uh, with them is this, that and I'll ask them if they have a job. And they'll say, yeah, I'm like $10 an hour. So how much did a chicken sandwich cost? Well, it's about six bucks. I said, oh, so for less than an hour's worth of your labor, you're able to trade for it right and everybody who had a hand in the production did it voluntarily. yeah pretty
0: amazing pretty amazing pretty
2: amazing So if you can get if you can get kids to think along those lines the students to think along those lines all of a sudden it becomes obvious why we we would engage in trade and why freedom matters
0: yeah All right. Well, this looks like a good spot for a break. So uh, I think coming out of the break, I'm going to uh, challenge us to think about how we're all brought up little socialists and we'll uh, come back in 30 seconds.
3: The Gortney Institute's vision, by 2030, the Courtney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economics understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please visit our website at 123povertysex.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysex or on Facebook at Courtney Institute for updates on our activities and research. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysex.org.
0: back we're uh, continuing on with our discussion here we've kind of dipped into socialism and uh, we'll try to get back to the socialism sucks book a little bit and some of the topics that they did there Uh, but i uh, left us with a question of how we're all brought up little socialists and i don't think we really think about that as much as we need to on why some people have some perceptions that socialism is the way we just need to keep we just need to figure it out better and and We're all born into a little brand of socialism of some sort, right? As we're a little toddler, uh, everything comes from the dictator mom and or dad or some sort of uh, the king and queen, so to speak. And so I think when we start to be fed that, we have to be trained into freedom. I mean, we have to kind of learn how to be independent and dependent on how our parents uh, uh, cultivate our uh, behaviors and with their either discipline or lack of discipline. I mean, I think we're, we're brought up to think that things can be planned out. And uh, I think the wall that we hit is that our limits as a human being of a single mind is we can only have a certain amount of stable relationships. Uh, uh, there's a study that I'm drawing a blank on. Um, I think it was 144 stable relationships is roughly. And when I say stable, these are people that you loosely know even, and you know, you keep in touch with them every once in a while, you start boiling down to how many people can you have a real more intimate relationship where you share things that you don't share with other people. And I think most people are down to 10 people or so, right? I mean that, that you really, uh, keep in that close of contact with. And so I think the, the limits of humanity, uh, arise quickly. And um, that's where Hayek gets into the uh, impossibility of successful central planning. It just, it's just not going to happen. So I thought uh, maybe I'd throw that out there for my two cents on how we're all brought up little socialists. And so it's not that we're anti-socialists. It's just that we're anti too big of socialism. Like those networks of, of uh, socialism that work are actually very tiny. They're in the family. They're in maybe your uh, businesses, you know, the boss is the dictator. And so we, uh, but we have more voluntary action rather than uh, uh, having it by force. Well,
2: you know, I think that, I think it's a good point. Uh, And if you think about it for a moment, I was reading, thinking about Dr. Carson's uh, memoirs that he wrote, he he titled it Swimming Against the Tide and he talked about his life growing up. Well. He was the son of a of a sharecropper in rural Alabama, and uh, so he talked about his childhood, and he was fairly free to play with his friends until about age nine. Who's uh, can you can you explain, Dr. Carson? I I didn't. Yeah, uh, Dr. Carson uh, was a historian by training. Okay. But a long time. Uh, on the editorial board with the foundation for economic education. Oh, gotcha. Okay.
0: So this is yeah. the fee connection.
2: Uh, anyway, he, um, he was talking about at age nine, all of a sudden, it was time for him to go to work for the family. And, uh, so he, he went out to work in the fields, so, mm-hmm. and, and you can imagine, uh, life changed for him and he had to learn work at that point. Well, think about it for a moment. Now we don't even let kids go to work until, what, well, get a job until they're 16 without parental approval. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and really, if you think about, uh, even college today, college is an extension to degree of, uh, not quite adulthood, not quite childhood, but, uh, an intermediate uh, sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I think there is something to that, that, um, we are raised and things are just provided for us. And we think that's should be the way it is until we actually learn how to work for ourselves and be productive for ourselves. Um, So, yeah, I think, I think there's something to that.
1: So, so I have a question and this kind of ties back to what you were saying before about, um, you know, students kind of uh, and their interaction with socialism and why, why we need to talk about it. And so you, you, I think you did a good job explaining kind of the, you know, the educational part of that, um, for us. But I I wonder though, like how, how much of this has to do with, um, you know, sort of a, a character kind of thing. So if you, you know, you can be told all of this stuff that, you know, well, before, you know, modern life was so convenient, you know, the, there, there were a lot of big mistakes being made in terms of, um, you know, socialism and, and the way economics works and stuff like that. But I wonder how much of that has to be kind of, um, you know, experienced. Um, and so in other words, you know, if we, if we think about, you know, the, the classical virtues and, uh, you know, and building character and things like that, and in a world where everything is so convenient for us, um, I wonder if there's, um, you know, an experience level, uh, for instance, you know, with, with the way this book was written, um, you know, for how, uh, how someone might come to the conclusion that, okay, you know, maybe I do see now where, um, you know, large central planning through the government is, uh, is, is a negative thing.
2: Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I really think this is why history is so important for students. And, and sometimes I think maybe you're right, Levi, that experiential history would be well, that they should have. I, I remember, um, Take, we we went on a trip, and we spent some time in Ukraine, and you can kind of see the aftermath, but still see the aftermath of the Soviet Union in Ukraine even today, and the corruption of the state. But on our way back, we stopped in Krakow, uh, Poland, and we went to Auschwitz.
0: Mm-hmm. I've been there, too. The, I was on that's that similar sobering, trip.
2: That's a sobering trip, and and they've kept it alive. They've kept the history alive. <coughs> See it, right, and and sense it in a way that is very much different than just reading it in a book. Um, Yeah, when
0: you actually see the piles of hair, exactly, and shoes, and it's disgusting at a level that is hard to describe.
2: It it really is, and I I, so I think I I do think things like this are very much necessary. Um, You know. This is once again, Dr. Carson uh, in his books about why, why should we study history? And, uh, you know, it, because we can learn from history. Mm-hmm. And it, it's almost as if, you know, there are things that are authoritative, and I, I just soon not ever experience. I, I, you know, I just soon not ever experience burning my hand with third-degree burns on a hot stove. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to experience those things. I, you know, in, in some experiences, well, you can have once and then no more experiences. Uh, so, you know, having some authority issues in life, I think are, are well worth learning. And, um, I think a lot of what's happening in our education system is that's being just totally stripped away. Um. Yeah, and and there's a great deal of indoctrination that there there aren't any final truths to know, and uh, and you can't you can't know anything, and so you can make it up on your own. And I think we see an we we see a lot of this among young people today, where they say, "Oh, can you invent my own truth?" Right. And of course, that's not the case uh, at all. There are principles. There are. Uh, certain things that are hard and fast and you're not going to just because your opinion disagrees with them going to overrule them uh, so I think that's part of our problem that we face today with some of the uh, with some students
1: right and it's it's easy to see kind of where the you know the Christianity and the faith issues kind of can weave into that uh, you know maybe if we we're, we're losing sight of the concept of you know, uh, some kind of objective truth that's transcendent, then, um, you know, it might make sense that, you know, people aren't uh, seeing a connection to the past and any, uh, you know, maybe they're not seeing that as a useful thing.
0: Right. Paul, what, uh, with your faith and economics, I just, uh, we didn't get into denominations. I mentioned Levi is Catholic and I'm a Lutheran church, Missouri synod, uh, guy, Um, What is your uh, denomination, or where do you you tend to practice to get that as a background? Uh, At a Presbyterian church. Oh, Presbyterian, okay. So that's uh, following a little different uh, traditions there. So um, with your work with the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, that's where Paul and I first met, um, what have you been doing with them, or what do you you think is the most pressing issues that they're trying to tackle?
2: Uh, One of the things that um, I'm planning to do, and this, you know, they just put out the book on religious liberty. Uh, I, I guess it's still forthcoming. I, I, I think it's almost in print, but the next one that they want to do in the series is a book on economic freedom. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm hoping to work with, uh, with Dr. Ann Bradley, uh, and with Hugh in developing that project. So that's kind of, probably next fall, uh, a project that we'll be working on. The other thing I'm going to do with them, and this will also be probably beginning to work on it this year, um, and going into next year is to look at my, my kind of working title on a research project is the rise and fall of free enterprise in America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at the, uh, the colonial period, the, the formation of the colonies, of course, they came here under various compacts, usually with some kind of, uh, with a, a company back in England. And, and they tried to work communally. They tried to be, uh, uh good communists, <laughs> if you will, and, and, and socialists. And it was a total disaster. Uh, <laughs> if if the Pilgrims hadn't adopted, if, if Bradford hadn't just cut people free to have their own property, the, the colony would have been, probably been wiped out and never succeeded. The same, the same thing was true in Jamestown, um, and you know, if you go back and really look at the history, they were forced to either die or we're going to have to work on our own, <laughs> and, uh, and and and. You know, with the option being death, I think they got it quickly that it would be a good thing to be productive on your own and and survive and live. Uh, And they were able to, you know, get a foothold. Um, Now, they still weren't involved. I mean, mercantilism still was the overarching rule of the colonies, you know, for years from their initial founding. And it wasn't until later that the rudiments of, of freedom began to emerge in the writings of, uh, you know, of uh, John Milton and John Locke around the time of the Glorious Revolution in in England. And those ideas began to spread and and build throughout the next century. Uh, so I don't, I don't think it's a surprise that the Declaration of Independence was signed in the same year that Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations.
0: hmm Yeah, there are definitely,
2: definitely some
0: connections there. They're, I think,
2: they're so. merging together uh, ideas that are merging in time and that are giving rise to this this free enterprise mindset. Uh,
0: yeah, it's somewhat miraculous how it all came together really. And uh, I've really? never never been much of a historian myself, but the, the details are are fascinating. So I like uh we um you know some of the criticisms we might have of people not appreciating the history, blah blah blah. I was definitely one of those. And so I, I'm not sure how to overcome that. Um since I was one of them that didn't really care about history, didn't really care about, <laughs> about politics. Um, again, I think it's easy for us in our own little microcosm to, uh, take for granted the way things are. And, uh, in fact, that's part of what we preach, which is kind of funny, right? That if we, if we all kind of, uh, keep to ourselves and do what's best for ourselves, then, then the public, uh, interest will be served. Well, that's all predicated upon, they're not being interventions, <laughs> wow. Wow. but, but yet, so we're telling people that we got to watch out for that, but we can't. So I, I think we run a, we run a fine line. And I, I think our, uh, our mission is important as uh, economics professors and, and uh, men of faith to try to look and continue to see where those overlaps are and to keep people thinking.
2: Right. Well, um, so in, in a lot of my work, You know, I've done a lot of economic history um, because I think it's so fundamental and so important to to understand those times rightly. uh,
0: Yeah, I hope we're we're moving that direction here at Ottawa too. The Gorton Institute just uh, brought on a philosophy professor uh, who wasn't able to join us today. Otherwise you would have been able to speak with him too. Uh, Dr. Justin Clark, and we're starting a a philosophy, politics, and economics major, one of the PP and E majors. And, uh, that is, uh, certainly part of our intent to try to infuse students with, uh, at least some of that history and appreciation so that we, we do have uh, a little different feeling of how good we got it. So
2: I think that's a, I think that's a very good thing. And, um, So I hope you're very successful. Well, thank
0: you. Yeah. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap for today. And so uh, on behalf of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University, I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Paul Cleveland, for joining us today with your wisdom and uh, insights on faith and economics. Well, thanks for having me. You bet. All right, and so if you like what you've heard, uh, please uh, subscribe to our podcast uh, as a regular download, and um, that'll help us rise in the ranks and people's searches for topics such as these. Um, I was able to talk to a reporter today that was uh, listened to our podcast, somehow stumbled onto us, so the more that you uh, put us out there, if you like what you're hearing, that'll help spread the word. You could put us on a Facebook post or Twitter post or However you communicate with people, even if it's at the coffee shop, uh, talking uh, face-to-face, wouldn't that be strange to bring up Faith in Economics podcast? (laughs) uh, So thanks again for listening, and be fruitful and multiply. Till next time.